And as you're taking your seats, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. As you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I just want to begin by saying that uh, I was asked a few months ago to, um, to preach a message at a, a senior pastors and wives retreat. And uh, I, I chose this passage because Paul in this passage is really speaking in many ways to those who are committed to full-time vocational ministry, but it does impact every single Christian. It really is a message to all faithful followers of Christ. I, I actually preached a version of this message in our men's ministry, and after I finished, a couple of the elders said, you need to preach this for the church. And, uh, and so I am I'm doing that this morning with the hopes that God will take this and use this in our hearts and shape us and transform us. I want to begin by reading the passage. It's probably familiar to you. 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 24, Paul gives us this beautiful analogy of the Christian life, and he, he writes these words. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, and I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I've always loved this passage. In fact, it has been one of my favorite passages in the Bible from a, a very early age. See, in my previous life, I was a, a somewhat of an athlete. In fact, running was my specialty. And I know that's hard to believe looking at me now, but when I graduated high school, I weighed 138 pounds soaking wet. Don't try and do any calculations and figure out how much weight I've put on. It's plenty. I ran uh, very competitively. I ran an elite level, and uh, I ran middle distance and long distance, cross country, and everything in between. And I was often asked the question, why, why do you run? Which is a fair question for people who run. There was one thing when I thought about running that I loved more than anything else. There was really one reason why I did it. It wasn't the, the runner's high, which I simply think is some myth that people made up to try and get people to run. <laughs> it was not the, the beauty of the outdoors and the scenery and the peacefulness of it, although all those things are true. That's not why I did it. It was not the thought of doing something healthy and productive that was going to benefit me in some way, my body uh, in a health, from a health perspective. That's not why I did it. There was one reason I did it, and the reason was simple. I love to win. That's it. That's the only reason I did it. I love to win. I wanted to win. That's why I did it. It drove everything about this endeavor in my life. Everything I did when it came to running and training and participating in this very painful at times sport was driven by this simple goal. I wanted to win. Every single time I raced, I wanted to win. I didn't want to settle for anything but first place. And that drive to win really dictated my life. And, and this was a massive, all-consuming part of my life. And there is no mistaking this, this passage, when it comes to the point of this passage, what the driving emphasis is in the mind of the Apostle Paul. As he takes this analogy of the Christian life, he makes it clear that it is, there is one all-consuming goal that every one of us should have if we are a follower of Christ and if we have entered into the race of the Christian life. And he makes it very clear in verse 24. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Some translations actually say these words, run in such a way that you may win. The goal is to win. And the Christian life is a race. Christian ministry for the Apostle Paul and for many others is like a race. And there awaits a prize at the end of this race for each one of us. An eternal reward, an eternal blessing, a crown, an imperishable wreath that will be placed upon us for, who, for those of us who have followed Christ faithfully. The question is, how can you run this race so that you may win? That's really what Paul is concerned about in this passage. He sets before us the objective and the goal, and he says the goal should be to win. You should want to win, and now he wants you to ask the question, how can I win? And the simple answer, really, really, the defining kind of 
portrait that this paints for us is this. Like every athlete who wins, you must be disciplined. You must have a life that is consumed with discipline around the right things. And so Paul emphasizes here the need for Christians to be disciplined people. And I want to break this passage down into three uh, simple athletic kind of terms, playing off the athletic metaphor. I want us to focus on how to be disciplined and ultimately how to win this race. And the first point I want to give you is this, train hard. If you want to win in the Christian life, if you want to win in this race for Jesus Christ, then it requires this kind of a mindset. You must be willing to train hard. And Paul really gets at this with one simple word. In verse 25, he says, every athlete exercises, here it is, self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Paul's concern in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in particular is winning. We've we've kind of made that very clear. But again, the, the question really comes down to, well, winning what? What is Paul ultimately talking about here when he's talking about winning? What's the goal and what's the prize? I think it's important to understand the flow of the, the context. All the way back in chapter 8, Paul has made it very clear that winning in the Christian life is really about what you're willing to give up. It's about a life of sacrifice. And we see that in the end of verse 8, he, he, chapter 8, excuse me, he talks about those, uh, the weaker brothers and food that's being offered to idols. And he makes this statement, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. In other words, Paul's heart for those who are not just, follow, not just unbelievers, but followers of Christ who are more immature in the faith, is that he might help them grow. And so he says, I'm willing to give up my liberties so that it might bless and benefit somebody else in their Christian life and in their Christian growth. And then in chapter 9, Paul really puts on a clinic of what it means to live a life of self-denial, of giving up rights that he could choose to exercise if he so wanted. And he begins in chapter 9 by talking about how free he is in the Lord, the liberty that comes with being a follower of Christ and being a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he begins to make statements about rights that he has, legitimate rights to take along a believing spouse like other apostles, rights to earn a living from preaching the gospel full time. And he makes these things abundantly clear. Clearly, in the context of Corinthians, some of these things were being questioned. But Paul wants them to know the kind of life he lived. He didn't live the Christian life and Christian ministry by wanting and longing to exercise his rights, by demanding his rights, by declaring his rights. It was just the opposite for Paul, though he could have done that rightfully even before the Lord. One of the things he wants to make so clear is that all these rights he had so freely given to him by God, he was so willing at a moment's notice to lay them down for the sake of others. Nonetheless, he says, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. You see Paul's heart? It wasn't me first, it was Jesus first. He says, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For though I am free from all, he says in verse 19, I have made myself a servant to all, listen to this language now, that I might win more of them. And then Paul goes on to talk about how he he longs to win souls, and that's what part of the winning is in this passage for sure. It's a heart to win people to Jesus Christ. And so he says, to, to those without the law, I became as one without the law so that I might win those without the law. To those under the law, the Jews, I became as one as under the law, though he was not under the law, that he might win those who were under the law. Paul longs to win souls, but you notice in verse 23 what he says right before our passage. He says this, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing." You see, what Paul is saying in that is that, yes, he longs to win souls, he longs to win people to Christ, but part of the reason he longs to win them is that they can share together in the blessings that will be theirs in Christ Jesus here and now, but in the life that's to come. He longs to win friends for eternity. And so he sees in this life 
The pursuit of winning is winning souls, but it is also winning the race of the Christian life so that at the end, you get to the end and all those people that you had the chance to impact for the cause of Jesus Christ are standing there with you and together you will receive the blessings of eternal reward and eternal life in Christ Jesus. And here Paul is making it clear that in order to win some, you must be willing to give up what you are free to do. If you want to excel and train hard in the Christian life, if you want to win in the Christian life, it begins right here. What are you willing to give up? The reality is, Paul is concerned, and we ought to be too, about removing stumbling blocks, willingly sacrificing liberties, things we are free to do so that others might be exposed to Christ and maybe receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. You don't easily give up liberties, by the way. None of us do by nature. Most of us struggle and want to fight for our liberties rather than give them up. And you don't give them up easily until you've learned to cultivate a life devoted to the disciplined pursuit of Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul has modeled through us all throughout his life and ministry. He is consumed with Christ first. He is not consumed with him first. Paul's drive for the prize produces a life of discipline. That's what's emphasized in this passage in verse 25 in particular. Every athlete, he says, exercises self-control in all things. In the Greco-Roman world that Paul was writing to, they were familiar with athletic endeavors very much like us today. They were consumed with sports. They had what was called the Ismian Games, which is similar to the Olympic Games, They had arenas, they were exposed to people training all the time and and highly valuing and prizing athletic endeavors and pursuits. There was a huge emphasis on this in the culture, and so Paul is drawing upon a familiar analogy to them, and it's one that we also understand so clearly in a culture that is obsessed with sports and obsessed with athletes and obsessed with the pursuit of more and better and faster and stronger. But this disciplined life of pursuit is about giving up. And in God's economy, giving up is gaining. And this is true for an athlete. You see, you don't become an athlete, an elite athlete in particular, by doing what everybody else does. You become an elite athlete by giving up what everyone else won't. It's about a willingness to give up So many liberties, so many things you are free to do so that you can be the best you can possibly be. To be a professional athlete is to put on a clinic of delayed gratification. If I want to win later, I must do things now that the majority are unwilling to do. While everybody else is is eating junk food and eating McDonald's, I'm going to go eat clean. When everyone else is sleeping in, I'm going to get up early and train. While everyone else is going out late and having fun and and meeting with friends, I'm going to go to bed early so that my body can recharge. While everybody is being lazy and sitting in front of a television, I'm going to be disciplined. Nobody wins the Olympics by dumb luck, right? We all understand that? Not one person, even, even in crazy sports, like curling, okay? <laughs> nobody, nobody, nobody wins, sorry if you love curling, nobody wins at any elite level sport by sheer dumb luck. It just doesn't happen. Every once in a while, people will, will think, well, they, they're, they're just, they had way more advantages. And, and sure, people can have more advantages in life, but that, that should in no way do away with the hard work that elite-level athletes put into winning and su- succeeding at their goals. I remember one author said it like this, I'm a great believer in luck. The harder I work, the more of it I seem to have. <laughs> Training and preparation is ultimately where the race is won or lost. So let me just remind you of where your training ground is and my training ground is. What is to be our focus when we think of training hard in the Christian life? Here it is very simply. It is personal holiness. Personal holiness is the training for the Christian life, for the Christian fruitfulness and successfulness and effectiveness in the economy of God. I love Abraham Lincoln had this quote. He used to say this. Someone used to say, Say to him, or he said to someone, excuse me, at some point, if you gave me six hours to cut down a tree, I would spend four hours sharpening the axe. Listen, Christian, personal holiness is the sharpening of the axe in the Christian life. 
It is what will make you an effective Christian in the kingdom of God. Make no mistake about that. There is nothing more important for you to hear this morning than your pursuit must be after personal holiness at the fundamental level. It can't be after ministry success. It can't be after ministry opportunities. It must first be after personal holiness. Robert Murray McShane was a pastor centuries ago now in Scotland, and he believed that ministers especially should pursue and give evidence of a holy life. And, and we believe here in our church that certainly ministers of the gospel, those who are called into full-time ministry, ought to exhibit a holy life, but the standard for them is no different than the standard for every other follower of Jesus Christ. There is simply a greater accountability. But in speaking to ministers and the, the necessity of the holiness of their lives, he wrote to a Reverend Dan Edwards, and he said these words, Remember you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. And I'm going to put these word, next words on the screen. They're so, so important for you to see. Listen to what he says. He says, In great measure, according to the purity of perfections of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. To another pastor, he wrote, study universal holiness of life. Your whole usefulness depends on this, for your sermons last but an hour or two. You're lucky. <laughs> but your life preaches all the week. We've been saying this for, for a few weeks now, but character matters more than competency. Holiness of life is what God cares most about for followers of Jesus Christ. A life that is set apart from sin and devoted in increasing measure to God, into his purposes, into his glory. Devoted to, to his name, not our name, to his kingdom, not our kingdom, to his will, not our will. The Apostle Paul would write in 2 Timothy 4 verses 7 through 10, it'll be on the screen behind me as well. He said, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Listen to this. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And then listen to these words. For the, to this end, we toil and strive. This is the energy. This is the effort. This is the passionate pursuit of the Christian. We toil, we strive, we labor, we sweat over this because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. You see how he connects this? The holiness of your life and the effectiveness of your life are so intimately tied together. The holier you are, the more useful you are. And what you're winning is, yes, an eternal reward that will be showered upon you by a gracious Father. But more than that, or on top of that, you are winning people to Christ who then will get to experience the same thing by the grace of God that you will. I got these little cue cards on my desk. Um, I write down quotes every once in a while, and there's one that I've had since the, the, the very first week we planted this church, I remember writing it down and, and placing it beside my desk, and I look at it every day, and it was written by, by Robert Murray McShane, the same man whose quote we just read, and, and he said these words, he said, the greatest gift I can give to my people is my own personal holiness. And I, I, again, I, I know he's saying this a lot, but I, just, I need to say it again and again. Husbands, listen, the greatest gift you can give to your wife is your own personal holiness. Husbands, the greatest, or excuse me, wives, the greatest gift you can give to your husbands is your own personal holiness. Parents, mothers, happy Mother's Day. The greatest gift you can give to your children is your own personal holiness. Grandparents, the greatest gift and legacy you can leave to your grandchildren and children and their children is your own personal holiness. 
There is nothing, nothing more valuable and precious that you can give to others. And so this must be the area we train hard at in the Christian life. And that requires, listen, for some of us here today, we know there are areas in our life where there is not holiness present, where there is sin present, where there is the ugliness and wickedness of our own sinful pursuits and desires. And some of you right now, you know what they are. You can see them right in front of your face. The Spirit of God is letting you know this is an area right here that must be cleaned up, that must be purged of sin, that is not acceptable before me, that is rendering you uh, useless instead of useful in my hands. And God wants you to cleanse that from your life through repentance and confession to bring the sin out of the darkness and into the light. To no longer live in the the hiddenness or the obscurity that you think you're enjoying in your sin. And to confess it with boldness and confidence and brokenness before the Lord. That is the fastest way to get yourself to a place of holiness. This isn't about you right now thinking about somebody else's sin. This is about you thinking about your sin. And then... Once you're in a place of brokenness before the Lord, you must get after the Lord himself. You must long to be in the presence of God. You must plead with God to give you a deeper longing to be with him, to enjoy his presence, to know his face. You must, as a Christian, if you want to be holy, you must get your face before the Lord in his word as he has revealed himself. You must begin to read the scriptures, to seek the face of God. You must read prayerfully, asking God to show you himself, to show you his holiness, his beauty, his majesty, his splendor, because then and only then will your heart be transfixed and behold what you see. And it's when you behold the glory of of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that you are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Let me put it another way. When you start beholding Jesus Christ in the the face of God the Father through the word of God, you will become a holier and holier person. You must get alone with God if you are going to be a holy, holy follower of Christ. And listen, this is where sacrifice comes in. Your willingness to sacrifice, to experience and enjoy both a quality and quantity of time with the Lord must become a necessity in your life. Just like the athlete who exercises self-control in all things, so do you too. Must look at your life and evaluate where you are wasting time and where you are not using your time wisely. And you must begin to pare things down so that you can be alone with God more frequently and more meaningfully. This is not a time that you can afford to give up in your Christian life. I don't care how busy you are. This is not a time you can afford to give up. It's a time you cannot live without. Train hard. Listen, church. Train hard in the pursuit of holiness and watch how the Lord blesses you. I love I was reading the Psalms this morning and the Lord just spoke to my heart through the psalmist who said that he, God, uh, withholds no good things from those who walk uprightly. Just watch as you pursue holiness, how the Lord just lavishes his blessings upon you and grows you and changes you from the inside out. This is the call to train hard in the pursuit of holiness. Secondly, notice this, we can't just train hard, we need to race smart. We move from the training ground into the actual athletic arena And in verse 26, Paul actually moves into two metaphors that are drawn out of the athletic arena. He says this, So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Both of these metaphors, the running aimlessly and the boxing as one beating the air, they they parallel each other, but they really are driving the same point home. The, The idea of beating the air or running aimlessly carries the idea of uncertainty. It's chaotic. It's confusing, and you can, you can imagine these pictures in your mind right now. You can see the, the person trying to run down the track, flailing their arms, wasting energy, looking confused, and looking like they don't belong. Or the, the boxer who, who's not swinging at an opponent, but he's just beating the air, accomplishing nothing, wasting time and energy. You see, without intentionality... And a clearly defined goal and purpose, 
We end up being aimless in the Christian life, rendered ineffective. Paul is so deliberate in how he lives his life and carries out his ministry. He's not flailing about, spiritually speaking. He's worked on his form. He's fine-tuned everything. He's got a goal and a strategy set in place. He's disciplined because he knows his success depends upon it. An undisciplined and aimless approach to the Christian life has destroyed or shipwrecked many would-be useful followers of Christ. By the way, I, I want you to notice how I phrase this. It's about running smarter. You know the cliche saying, it's not about running or working harder, but running or working smarter. That's exactly true when it comes to the Christian life. I saw a very personal example of this over the last couple of years in my own family. And uh, my daughter, Karis, she's given me permission to tell this story. She's sheepishly grinning over there. A couple years ago, um, she decided that she wanted to try and run cross country, which as a, a former runner made my heart very happy. And uh, I, I remember her talking about it and wanting to go and run. And so uh, I went and I watched her first cross-country race, and uh, she's a very athletic little girl and uh, got a lot of energy, and, and I, I remember how this all began. You know, she's standing on the starting line, and I'm about halfway down the course, and I'm excited, and, and I know that kind of she walked the course before with her friends, but they were, you know, first time, a lot of laughing, a lot of playing around, and uh, she's on the starting line. There's, you know, 100 kids or whatever, and, and the gun goes off, and I'm way down at the other end of the field, and, and I see this little girl way out in front of the pack. I mean, just, just way out, sprinting as hard as she can. And I'm beginning to wonder if she's going to slow down. And she just keeps going until she reaches me around the halfway point. And she is so far ahead of everybody, but all of a sudden she turns as she's running by and I'm cheering her on. And she looks at me and she goes, Dad, I can't. And she just stops. <laughs> And she is just gassed, just like can't hardly catch a breath. And all the kids start running past her, and they're all kind of, and I'm just like, just run a little bit, please, just a little bit, go. You know, and, and eventually she comes in around the middle of the pack. She still did very well, but she was in the middle of the pack. And I remember her saying to me afterwards, I never want to do this again. But the next year, as she was contemplating whether or not she was going to run, she was like, I don't think I'm going to do this again. And then finally she said, I guess I'm going to do it so I could continue to live vicariously through her. And she said, that this is what she said, though. She said, Dad, but this time can you help me? I said, yeah, I'd love to help you. And so she committed to training and to working hard. And, and we would go out uh, multiple times throughout the week. I'd take her out, and we'd go running in the trails, and we would we'd do some very strategic kind of training. We did some long runs. We did some intervals. We worked on some speed work. We did some hill repeats. You know, we mixed everything in there and, and kind of just kind of trained really hard. And then the day came where she was going to be racing and, and we, we walked the course together and we actually mapped out every part of the race strategically. This is, okay, this is how you've got to start, not like last time. This is where you're going to want to make a move. This is where you're going to want to speed up. This is where you're going to conserve some more energy. And then when you hit this part, this is where you're going to go. And, and we, we talked this through. We worked it out. And the starting line's there. I'm standing in the same spot in the middle. The gun goes off. And I'm watching her listen and follow the plan to a T. Watching her make her moves at the exact spots we discussed. And she, she kind of went into the trees where I couldn't see the, you can't see half the race. So the first half. And then in the trees, she's kind of right in this great spot. Kind of, you know, right around the 20th spot mark. And we've got this plan. There's this big hill coming up and she's going to bolt up the hill. That's where she's going to win the race. And so I'm, I'm racing across to the other end of the field, you know, as fast as I can, gimping along. And, and then, you know, I'm watching and I'm, I'm staring as the, looking down the, the final straightaway, they're going to come out of the trees, and I'm just watching, I'm just watching and waiting. You know, I was more excited than anybody there. <laughs> and then I see this, this little person way down there, and I'm trying to make out who it is, and sure enough, it's my daughter, and she's coming sprinting down, and she's just running full tilt in first place, and she passes me, she goes, I did it, Dad. <laughs> and I'm like, keep going, <laughs> they're, they're coming. <laughs> 
but it was such a, a, a powerful reminder, listen to me, of how so many of us live the Christian life. So many of us are, are like my daughter in that first year. We're just haphazard with it. We're just kind of going through the motions. We're not really thinking much about it, uh, just expecting that we're going to do well without putting any training, without putting any thought into it, without strategizing at all and seeking for any goal setting in the, 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 the race of the Christian life. And, and I want to encourage us this morning, we need to become more like the second year of my daughter's racing, where we are thinking through every aspect of our Christian life and strategizing more carefully, maybe than we ever have before, so that we can make more gains, that we can race smarter and be more effective in the kingdom of God this year. You see, our problem is that we face a multitude of distractions in trying to strategize and plan. We're aimless and running haphazardly, many of us, or we're simply aimed, listen, at the wrong goal. And I just want to give you three ways I think we can tend to get off track in the Christian life and in pursuit of this goal. Three simple ways. The first one is this, we get caught up looking at others. We get caught up looking at others, and this throws off our entire Christian race. You know, this, this concept of looking at others, this is racing 101. This is something you learn very, very early on in racing. You're running your race, not somebody else's race. That's what my coach always used to say. Ian, run your race. Run your race. Don't ever turn and look behind you. Don't ever turn and look beside you. Right? That usually, when you see that happening, that's a distraction. All of a sudden, you're getting caught up thinking more about the other people than you are about yourself. And by the way, you're showing weakness and fragility. And opponents love to see that. Oh, he's looking. Now I got him. Now I got him. goal in the Christian life is to have our eyes fixed upon the finish line and upon the one who will be waiting for us there. But our culture has become so fixated on consumerism and materialism, on comfort and luxury. The simple term for that biblically is worldliness. We love the things of this world. We love what others have in this world. We have a tendency to measure our lives against what others have, what others do, and what others are. We turn and we look and we get, we get distracted from running our race, the one that God has placed before us. We play comparison games. We begin to envy one another in this life. And this is the work of Satan, stirring our hearts towards distractions. Billy Graham once told a story of two athletes. The one, a great champion was immortalized with a statue in the middle of their village. These two athletes competed against each other, and this one was constantly uh, outclassing the other, always winning every race, every event. And so this statue is placed in the middle of the village, and the other one, the one who lost the majority of the time, if not all the time, he hated his statue so much, and the idea that this man was being immortalized uh, over and above him. And each night under the cover of darkness, he would chisel away at the base of the statue. He wanted to make it fall. And one night he succeeded, but to his own ruin, for the statue fell on him and killed him. He was the victim, listen, of his own envy. For us in the Christian life, listen, the more we want to turn and look at others, the more we want to define ourselves by others, the more we want to strive for the things of this world instead of the things of eternity, listen, the more the more we are doing so to our own ruin. The second way we often get off track is this. We lose focus of what's most important. And this is very intimately tied to the first one. We get caught up looking at others, and so very naturally, we're, we're losing focus on what's most important. So many of us, even in this room, and this is, this is part of our culture, we're so busy, 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 never getting anything done, never getting anything accomplished, spinning so many plates. Greg McCowan, in his book, Essentialism, says this. He said, only once you, have, you give yourself permission to stop trying to do it all, to stop saying yes to everyone, can you make your highest contribution toward the things that really matter. I think that's true. So many of us are trying to do so much. We are often even busy doing many good things, but at the expense of doing the greater things. But the power, listen, of a no, a strong no, is in a stronger yes. The 
power of a stronger no is in the power of a strong, an even stronger yes. Let me tell you what I mean by that. If you don't know what you must do, you will end up doing the things you shouldn't do. But when you know exactly what you're supposed to do, when you have figured out what God has called you to do, when you understand, even biblically speaking, what principles and what endeavors should capture your life and should define your existence on this planet, then you know with those yeses bold and in front of you, highlighted in front of your face, you know exactly what you're supposed to do. And anything else that conflicts with that or takes you away from that is a very clear no in your life. So let me ask you this morning, do you know your yeses? Do you understand your top five God-given priorities? Do you understand even the buckets that you should be looking at in your life to help you define those? Every one of us is called to have God at the top. If you're married, your spouse comes next. If you have children, they're right behind your spouse. And then comes your job, and then comes your ministry in the church. But within those buckets, you need to figure out what your priorities are and you need to stick to those. Figure them out and do them well. Let me give you a third way we get off track easily in this world. We wrongly define success. And I think that this is a major problem in our culture. We wrongly define success. We live our lives to be successful or to appear to be successful, even in our own hearts. Even if nobody else has ever cared about our success, we have identified ourselves by certain measures or metrics Listen to me this morning. Your success is not defined by the size of your house, by how beautiful your home is and what you may have in it. It's not defined by how many cars you have or what kind of car you have. It's not defined by the size of your bank account or by your career or by the achievements that you've accomplished in your career or life or whatever it may be. See, we wrongly define success by what we have, not by who we are. By what we've done, not by who we've become. We define success by our accomplishments. And by the way, this can even happen spiritually. There's a lot of cliche sayings in the church that tell us that sometimes our understanding of success is completely off. We, we talk about uh, looking at what somebody has done for the Lord. Look at all they've done for the Lord. Like God must be really blessing them. Or look at their abundant fruitfulness by the way, we, we celebrate, we don't disparage fruitfulness, and we don't disparage results. We don't do that spiritually or worldly. But that cannot be our definition of success. We are not waiting to hear the words, well done, good and fruitful servant. We are waiting to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That is how God defines success. See, why, why not by fruit? Why, why not, you know, we want to we look at the, out, the external stuff. Why don't we define success by the, because that's God's job. God is the one who produces fruitfulness. God is in charge of that. That's his part of the equation. Our part of the equation is faithfulness, by the way, with his help. And wherever you are, whatever gifts God has given you, Whatever material blessings God has given you, listen, the call for you is the same as it is for everyone else. Be faithful, be faithful, be faithful with what God has given you. You see, it's this worldly idea of success that so often destroys our joy and it keeps us living in a constant state of fear and anxiety. And that is why it is so essential, lastly, to do this, listen, recover well. We must train hard, we must race smart, but we must learn to recover well. Paul in verse 27 says, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. There it is again. The idea of discipline and self-control. Some translations say that he disciplines my body and he makes it his slave. 
You see, he's the one controlling his body. His body's not the one controlling him. It's, it's not his inner sinful fleshly impulses that are driving his life that are controlling him. He has those under control. And the whole purpose is so that after, listen, after he has had a life of ministry, of preaching the gospel, of being faithful to Jesus Christ, that he would not himself be disqualified by some foolish fleshly desire that took over. I want to talk to you about one of the ways we fail to be disciplined and keep our body under control. This for sure is, is again, just talking about the necessity for holiness and watching and guarding your life and your heart and steering away from sin and being devoted to to godliness. But one of the ways I I think that we fail miserably in this area um, to exercise control and to keep our body under control is the area of recovery. Rest and recovery is often the key to longevity, and it is an important discipline in its own right. My story, my personal story in running, was one that was filled with a lack of rest and a lack of recovery. I ran hard, I trained hard, I was thinking about the moment, and when you're young, and you do a lot of foolish things, and you think you're invincible, and you think your body's never going to break down. Boy, am I paying for it now. But I ran very competitively, and my goal was uh, had opportunities for scholarships to go to the U.S., and, and I was running towards that goal, and, and I just saw that in front of my, my eyes, and, and I ran through a series of injuries, and, and I, I never addressed them properly. They were compounding injuries. They, they just led to, one, to that injury getting worse and then leading to another injury and another injury, and pretty soon my body was just breaking apart. I was told to stop early on. I was told to recover. I was warned by coaches. I began to hide injuries because I didn't want to hear it anymore. I lied about how I felt and what was actually happening. And one day, I was just simply playing basketball, and I took a jump shot, and that was it. My knee was done. You might say from that moment on, because of my foolishness and my foolish decisions, I was disqualified. Not because I cheated or not because I didn't follow the rules, but because I did not heed the warnings. Everything I had worked so hard for was lost in an instant. But I just want to ask a very serious question to you this morning. How many of us are on the cusp of losing everything, spiritually speaking, because we are not heeding the warnings? You know, one of the things I look at from this verse in the Apostle, just think about this. The Apostle Paul writes these words. That there is a genuine fear in his heart of being disqualified. There's a desperate need to continue to work hard at the things that matter most. And I take from that this, this simple truth. Listen, you can run so well for so long, but if you're not careful, in one moment you can be disqualified. And this disqualification is not about losing salvation. That's not what's at stake here. The Bible does not affirm any kind of ability to lose your salvation. God wasn't, won't allow that. Here's what it's about. Listen, it's about losing rewards. And I think if you think of the winning as, as twofold, your Christian life and the eternal rewards, but also winning souls, it's about losing the potential to win other people to Christ. How many, how many faithful followers of Jesus Christ have made grievous errors and have caused the faith of many who follow them to be shipwrecked. Every time I hear of a, I've been in ministry long enough now, every, every year I know someone, I know someone, personally know someone who disqualifies themselves from the ministry. And it scares the daylights out of me. Every one of us in this Christian life, listen, if you're running faithful, you are acquiring for yourself eternal rewards. And I don't know what the prize is. I don't know fully what the reward is going to look like in heaven. I just know it's going to be awesome. Did you know that the Bible affirms that you you can be accumulating your reward right now? Listen, but you can turn away and you can be unfaithful and you can lose. You can forfeit what you have worked so hard to gain. When people get tired, they often get lazy. They let their guard down. 
They compromise with sin. They do things they never thought they would do. And I know what some of you are thinking here. That would never be me. I would never do some of those things. It's just not possible. I I could never do that to the Lord. So said Peter. And if you don't believe it could be you, it almost certainly will be. You hear people say all the time, you know, there's the cliche saying, well, you know, when it comes to the things of the Lord and it comes to, to being faithful, Lord, it's better to burn out than to rust out, right? How about neither? Either way, you're out. Robert Murray McShane, the, the man I gave you that quote from the, at the very beginning of the message talking about holiness of life and the need for holiness. Listen, he was one of the most powerful ministers to ever stand in the pulpits of Edinburgh and Dundee, but he died at the age of 29 years old. Partly because he had weakened his constitution by overwork, by excessive busyness, chronic fatigue, and he reportedly said these words as he was dying. The Lord gave me a horse to ride and a message to deliver. Alas, I have killed the horse. What now can I do with the message? You know, when it comes to rest and recovery, the Bible has a lot to say about its importance. And really, this is a sermon for another time, but let me give you a taste The creation story, the very beginning of the Bible, starts with God working, and it ends with God resting. And we, as we've been talking about in the past few weeks, were made to mirror and to mimic what God is like to the world. The way we live our lives is displaying who God is. God works, and so we work, as we saw last week. But listen, God rests, and so we rest. Work and rest, they live in a symbiotic relationship with one another. And if you don't learn how to rest well, you will never learn how to work well, and vice versa. After all, the opposite of work isn't rest, it's sleep. Work and rest are are friends, not enemies. And in the Old Testament, God had built in the rhythm of life, working and resting. He gave to mankind the Sabbath, and he blessed it, and he called it holy. And on that day, he made it very clear that there wasn't working and buying and exchanging and purchasing. All those things were not to have any place on this day. It was a day that was set aside every week to remind people that they were not God. Sabbath isn't just a day to not work, it's a day to delight in what one Hebrew poet called the work of our hands, to delight in the life you've carved out in partnership with God, to delight in the world around you, and to delight, listen, this is what most, what's most important here, and to delight in God himself, to find rest in the one who created you, the one who designed you to find rest in him. The Sabbath commandment in the Old Testament teaches us about the necessity for rest and where ultimately we are to find that rest that our souls long for. And I would just urge you, you need regular rhythms of recovery in your life. You do need to sleep. Amen? Sleep reminds us that it all rests upon God and not us, pun intended. You need healthy rhythms of recovery. You need to have things like exercise and healthy eating. You need to steward your body that God has given you so that your mind will be sharp and you will be useful for as long as God gives you on this earth. You need time off. You need hobbies. The Sabbath rest as a principle should be practiced in every one of our lives. But you want to know what's interesting? In the book of Hebrews, four, chapter 4, verse 9 The author of Hebrews says that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. In verse 11, he says that we must strive to enter that rest through a life of of faithfulness and obedience to the Lord. So when Paul says here, I discipline my body and I keep it under control, he's demonstrating that we are indeed the Lord's, that we need to run hard, but we need to recover well in him. You see, earlier in the book of Hebrews, we're reminded that in in Christ, 
we who have believed have already entered into the rest. There is a kind of rest we enjoy in Christ right now at this very moment. We are not working to earn God's favor, to earn our salvation. Jesus Christ did that work for each and every one of us. Amen? And so while we strive toward our eternal rest, we enjoy a spiritual rest here and now in Christ. How, how do we do that, you might ask? The answer is very simple, but for some reason it's so difficult for us. We find our rest by constantly coming back to him. Our greatest recovery is always found in the presence of God through Jesus Christ. And Jesus, our Savior, he modeled this himself in his own life. In the busyness of ministry, pouring himself out each and every day, we see this time and time again. He, he pushes the disciples away, and he goes quietly alone to be with his Father. He knows that the place he finds rest, that the place where his soul is met with joy and satisfaction, the place where he can recover well is with his father, in the very presence of his father, on his knees, face to the floor. And this is where we must find our greatest rest too. Yeah, we can find rest in some other things that God, by God's grace, he allows us to find rest in. But make no mistake about it, the place where your soul will find its greatest rest is through Jesus. And we come to Jesus to find the grace we need. Listen, we come to Jesus to find the help we need. We come to Jesus to find the hope we need. We come to Jesus to be reminded that he worked and earned our salvation so that we don't have to. We come to Jesus to be renewed, to be replenished, and to let our weary souls recover well so that we might continue to strive with faithfulness to our King. 